Okay. Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome today's, to today's panel on immigration. Together, let's do some practical work on the Torah's mandate to love and protect the stranger. To help unpack this value, we have invited a number of panelists with a great deal of personal and or professional experience around immigration. Uh, first off, we have uh, Rebecca Kersner, Senior Director of the of grassroots campaigns at HIAS. Um, she leads the organization's grassroots advocacy and activism for refugees. Uh, once an organization that primarily helped Jewish immigrants and refugees, HIAS now brings our Jewish values and 136 years of experience to the aid and protection of all refugee populations. We also have with us Today, Charlie Davidson, co-chair at Synagogue Coalition on the Immigration Crisis. Uh, Charlie Davidson has led the Anche Chesed Refugee Assistance Program, which has helped to resettle refugee families. And for the past several years, he has co-chaired the Synagogue Coalition on the Refugee and Immigration Crisis, along with Judy Bass, which consists of 29 New York City synagogues and eight nonprofits. The SCIRC connects members to collectively advocate uh, for new immigrants on the local and national level. SCRIC serves as a resource for members to identify volunteer opportunities and monthly meetings offer education on current issues and a chance for those involved in this work to share their ideas. Uh, last but certainly not least, Uri Litzedek's own Eddie Chavez Calderon is here. Eddie wholeheartedly dedicates himself to social justice work a commitment he has held since his teenage years. His personal journey, which involved overcoming obstacles and fighting for the rights of migrant communities, communities across the United States has shaped his unwavering dedication to justice. As a DACA recipient, Eddie intimately understands the challenges faced by all immigrants, driving his belief that equal opportunities and rights should be accessible to all. Alongside his advocacy for immigrants, Eddie's journey led him to develop a profound connection with Judaism, inspired by Jewish tradition, teaching, and text, and guided by Re Rabbi Dr. Shmuley Yanglowitz, Eddie converted to Judaism, intensifying his commitment to bringing justice and equity into reality. We welcome Eddie's unique perspective into the conversation today. Uh, my name is Eliezer Weinbach. I'm a fourth-year rabbinical student at Yeshivat Chovavei Torah, and I'm interning this year with Uri and uh, let's get to it. So the first question for, and this will be for everyone, is uh, how should we continue to support migrant communities while maintaining security? And this is a, you know, a charged topic. I know definitely in, in my community and with uh, my friends when I discuss it, and uh, I'll ask you to feel free to tailor your, uh, tailor your response to your individual situation and uh, what you know best. And um, I guess let's start this question with uh, Rebecca. Thanks so much. Um, so uh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm coming from the perspective of a refuge, refugee agency in the world operating in 23 countries. Um, to to protect people who have fled their homes um, in, in search of safety. Um, and we do that in a number of 
different ways in this moment that the numbers of people needing protection, the number of people who cannot stay in their home countries because it is unsafe, the numbers of people fleeing Ukraine, Afghanistan, Syria, Haiti are significantly on the rise. And things like the economic effects of COVID, the effects of climate change are just increasing those numbers. And so we don't have a choice of whether or not to uh, to help people or to care for people. The, the, this is our world and this is our reality. Um, and people don't flee their homes because they'd like to have a vacation. They flee their homes because that is, you know, that is the circumstances of their life and of their country. And, and, and we need to be, we need to be here as a, as, as the United States, which is a place that is, you know, largely, uh, you know, a, a wealthy country able to receive people able to, you know, that we need to be in a place where we're able to address these challenges head on and to treat people like people in the process. Judaism teaches us not to view this as 110 million people just in another. Judaism teaches us to view people as people um, who are equally and infinitely holy. There are clear moral reasons for wanting to make sure that people have access to their rights, to their safety, to a life of dignity. But in response to your question, there's also practical reasons to want to, to want to do that. They have to do with the safety of, of all of us. This is not good for security, as you asked. Denying the people to uh, the ability to cross borders only fuels the cartels and the smugglers. And that is not a, a safe situation either. We should have fair compassion very politicized. To the extent that political leaders have scored points and won elections by stoking fear and making it seem like there's a huge security breach by showing us photos of people lined up at the border, by showing us, by, by instilling fear for, a, for something that shouldn't be a cause of fear. Um, and I think we need to be aware of how that political rhetoric is impacting the conversations that we're having in our own homes and with our own friends and family and, and is impacting how we see who people are, why they're coming, who they are and, and uh, you know, and, and what they and what they need. Um, because there isn't a huge security breach, there's actually a very different thing, which is something that we created, which is a humanitarian crisis. The fact that there are people fleeing for their lives who are not given any options, um, who are largely the victims of violence, not its perpetrators. And we need to remember that and we need to stop using all of this country's resources on jailing people, keeping them out with walls and guns and razor wire, and instead use that same money and resource to address the root causes of why people flee and then to help the ones that do come to be treated fairly and compassionately in a fair process. I'll stop there for now. Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah, I appreciate the uh, the call for compassion and also the uh, the work that you're doing against the the misinformation uh, that are that's playing into the politics of this.
Um, let's move on to Charlie. Charlie, uh, how should we continue to support migrant communities while maintaining security? Sure, I, I think Rebecca's, Rebecca's comments are really why we often on our local level defer to, to the leaders and expertise of the folks at HIAS who, who do such a great job at leading us in, in those efforts. We, as, as a synagogue coalition locally, we do advocate on behalf of uh, national issues and we often follow HIAS's lead, but our, our, you know, our expertise and our experience is what we, what we see on the ground here, here in New York. Um, and first off, I, I just wanna sort of challenge or think about how we use words. Why we why we insist on using the word migrants? People have migrated here, but they are they live here now. They are immigrants, and the notion of continuing to use the word migrants plays into this idea that they are somehow temporary. That they it reminds me of the the Woody Guthrie uh, song "Pastures uh, of Plenty," uh, "Gone with the Dust and Here with the Dust and Gone with the Wind." Um, that we somehow owe them less because they're temporary. And I think I think it's incumbent on us, people who understand that words matter, to to move ourselves out of that very loaded word migrants and begin to talk about people as who they are, as immigrants, new immigrants, how they whether they are asylum seekers, whether they're documented, but they are new immigrants. They're people who are living in our community and and are deserving of our support in in that way. Um, you know, the, the the discussion that the the primary question is is about security is, as Rebecca says, plays into this idea that somehow immigrants make us less safe. Um, when in fact, we know from here, you know, in, in our own city, that in fact, they make us, that we are no less safe, that new immigrants are the people who drive our economy, who fill the needed jobs um, that are the, the engine of, of, of our city. Um, and so the question then comes into, how shall we address the security, the security issues of those new immigrants? And that starts by, by pushing back against the scapegoating of new immigrants, especially when it comes to our city and our state budget talks. Um, every, every, we've heard it from our mayor, even the, the New York Times in an article that focused on the, the, the governor's new, uh, new budget for 2024, uh, titled that uh, that article, um, "Migrant Costs Help Push New York State Budget to 233 Billion." It it doesn't the, the headline does not reference the fact that it's less than one percent of the total budget. It doesn't reference the fact that there are 200 and some odd million billion dollars of other things in the budget, and it doesn't reference the fact that the budget indeed contains a surplus greater than the amount that we're spending on. On immigrant on Im immigrant issues, um, that's the title, and so it plays into this idea of scapegoating people, um, and and we need to push back against that. Um, I would point everybody uh, to a wonderful piece, a wonderful report issued by our New York City controller Brad Lander's office. It was called "Fear Facts, Not Fear," um, and it details in really really exacting form how both economically and in many other ways, immigrants help not, don't make our city any less safe. Um, so what can we do to, to make, make things better for new immigrants? There's the work we do on the ground. As advocates, we can certainly advocate, I know this is high up on Hyas's list for 
uh, it's what is House Bill 1325, the Asylum Seekers Work Authorization Act. Because how, you know, it's crazy. How is it possible that asylum seekers are forced to wait 180 days before they can work legally? It puts them at risk um, from wage fraud. It puts them at risk, risk because they need to work in an underground economy. It hurts our economy because people aren't paying taxes. Um, it's, it's such a simple, basic issue. So that's one of the things we can do for everyone's security. We can advocate for the federal government to provide more help to the local local communities and states that that are expending their funds on it. Um, and what can we do as volunteers? The opportunities, certainly here in our city, and I'm sure everywhere else, the opportunities are limitless. There are organizations, big and small, that, that provide people an, an opportunity to volunteer, to donate, and to help. And I think our job, um, from an organizational point of view, as, as, as a coalition here in New York, um, is to help people provide, find those doors where they can volunteer. There's, I know certainly in every synagogue community that I that I'm work with that there are people ready and willing to help. And our job is to simply show them an access point. Um, and I think those are the things that drive security for everybody. Thanks, Charlie. I appreciate the reframe uh, on the question. Uh, from moving from migrant to uh, to immigrant, um, you know, someone who's actually a, a new immigrant, someone who lives here and maintaining security. The security we need to be focused on is is the security of uh, of the others, not not really ourselves, who are not not at risk. Um, Eddie, uh, can you can you weigh in on this question, please? Definitely. Thank you so much. Um, I, I think that this question has always been used to instill fear in our communities. Um, based off of the highlight of some bad apples that we we use that to kind of get the consensus for the majority of of uh, new um, immigrants that are in our country. And it starts to like shift into like a very xenophobic way of approach um, that pushes people into a fight or flight mode. Um, but we also know that the data doesn't match the security concerns that a lot of people are are really trying to push for us. Um, I had the lovely experience of working with my friends from Setic America to bring in uh, a lot of students to the border, and I've been able to talk to a lot of Border Patrol agents. And one of my biggest uh, takeaways from speaking to a lot of Border Patrol agents um, was my time with a retired Border Patrol agent, uh, Chris Montoya, who is is pretty famous uh, for his work on, on the border. And I asked him, Chris, you know, Everybody says that Border Patrol is like the scariest, like most dangerous job because you're facing off against the cartel. Can you tell me about it? And he says, actually, um, I did my thesis on this and the data disproves that Border Patrol is the most dangerous law enforcement job in the border right now. It actually shows that um, park rangers have the most dangerous job right now. And that is, that goes to counter the narrative of what we're hearing of of like we're getting invasions and we're uh, of these dangerous people that put our law enforcement at risk at the border with border patrol and that there's this constant, you know, shootings through the border wall and stuff. We just don't have the data to support that. Um, it, it just isn't something that is is truly supported. And I think it's interesting that we we continue to submerge into this 
this narrative because it's scary and it brings in fear and it drives in fear. And for a lot of us, it's easier to hate something than it is to be scared of something and welcome in the unknown. So we we push this narrative of just hyper-focusing on security than rather looking at the humanitarian side of things. And it's hard, right? I, I honestly believe that it's so hard that that's why we're told more than 36 times how to love and protect a stranger. Because it's not easy. If it was super easy, we would all not have to have been told so many times, right? And um, I, I think it's it's so important for us to crucially think about it. And what are the narratives that are at play that are trying to uh, scare a lot of people? And what um, how is it that folks are pushing for uh, xenophobia to spread within our own communities and think about fear uh, through through the ways of security? I, I do I do also think that if we were to shift border patrol policies from the current policy right now, which is deterrence through fear, um, into uh, more safe and secure processings that have tangible outlets for people to come out with screenings and work permits, we would see an incredible more amount of of, of safety and security nets. Um, but we're not seeing that. Right. We're, we're seeing money just being divested into more law enforcement rather than procedures and, and policy that isn't working. And we're still pushing the same narrative of deterrence through fear that, like my co- my great colleague Rebecca says, has actually employed more of the cartel's business. Right. Because we've created this streamline for them to have an open business for them. If people if people didn't have a need for this consumption of of the practice that they're selling, it wouldn't exist. But yet we continue to um, embolden a lot of the policies that a lot of these folks uh, continue to perpetuate. So I think that when we think about it through a, a holistic humanitarian point of view that looks at policies that affect the people first and 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 continue to uh, empower communities, which we have resources for, the sun shines for everybody, especially in this great country, we have the ability to do both without bringing in xenophobic fear into our communities. Yeah, thanks, Eddie. Thanks for highlighting the the psychology behind what's going on and also the facts on the ground of what it is to be at the border. Um, yeah, n- none of those are are obvious from the conversation, which uh, which takes place uh, usually. Um, so, Eddie, while I have you, uh, I'd like to ask you another question. What motivates you to work in support of immigrants and refugees? Oh, man, uh, I have a direct, direct fire inside of me. Um, in uh, 1999, I crossed the border with my mom. Um, I I did that undocumentedly with my mom. And um, she's a single mother that put me on her back and walked across the desert. Um, we were fleeing from incredible violence that was being perpetuated in, in my home country in, in Mexico. And my mom saw n- no other choice but to bring in a, a chance of prosperity and hope to her child, which she was successful. And to me, I look at every time I'm helping an asylum-seeking family I and I see a young child with them, I see a reflection of my mom and I see myself and each and every one of those families. And I think back to myself, I was nurtured in the United States with resources. I was nurtured with an, an, an incredible amount of love. And now look where I'm able to be. I'm able to give back to my community. I'm able to participate in civic engagement series that educate my community. I'm able to um, give so much of myself back 
to those who helped and 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 cared for me and my mom when I needed it the most. And um, funny enough, our our work on the ground here in Uriel Tzedek takes in a huge volume of asylum seekers that get to use our showers and our resources that come through the exact same port of entry in Nogales, Arizona, that I came into back in 1999. So for me, it's not only personal on on on, on my own uh, immigrant story, but it's also very spiritual to me in my Judaism, very grounding into who I am as a Jew and my job to make sure that um, whenever there is large amounts of hate towards the Jewish community, we show up and dispel that darkness with our insane compassion, our 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 love, our our community outreach to support the most vulnerable in our community, which is why I love that we have two amazing panelists here from our folks in New York um, to Rebecca, who I've known for years that has been on the ground advocating, not just on policy, but direct communities um, to empower so many people to make change. And I think that that's such a beautiful grounding in, in, in our chesed and our kindness that and, and how we react to what's going on in the world. You know, right now it's very hard and scary to be Jewish, and yet we're still boldly Jewish, helping so many migrant communities and doing it without a, a thought in the world. I, I, I can guarantee you there's hundreds of people that Charlie works with that don't even blink to think about helping somebody who needs support. And I think that that's the radical idea of, of love and protect your stranger that changes from just tolerance, right? Because uh, the Torah is very clear. It doesn't say you must tolerate the stranger because that's that's very, very wild to think about, right? Tolerance is something that we move away. But think about it. How do we love something? And just to conclude, I think that I come from a place of love with a grounding in my Judaism and an inspiration from my own personal story to continue to advocate in a humanitarian point of view for those who are seeking the same hopes and dreams that I now have access to. Thanks, Sally. Wow, Eddie, thank you for sharing uh, your story. It's it's inspiring to me. And I just hope that the work that we all do, every single participant on this call uh, can hopefully honor the work that you do. Um, let's, uh, let's go to Rebecca. Rebecca. What are the immigration policies that Hyas is really concerned with right now? Where do I start with that one? <laughs> um, so I, I want to say that I think that if you were to try to find common ground with, you know, across the entire political spectrum, uh, something that we can all agree with is that the immigration system is broken. How we fix it? That that's where we disagree. But I think that I think that it's so clear that what we have right now is not a system. It's not, you know, a a you know, a hobbling along bureaucracy. You know, it is, it's it's really um it's 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 really in need of some serious attention and some serious resource and some serious political will to actually say let's build something that enables us to to handle all different kinds of immigration into this country. Um, but I would like to go from that high place to kind of drill down on what's going on in the Senate this week, 
which is that they are considering a funding bill and will vote on it probably later this week, could be as early as tomorrow, which had the intended purpose of providing short-term foreign aid to Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel, much of which is quite necessary. Um, but in order to obtain that, they have traded away long-term asylum protections. Actually, I'll say this even more strongly, which is that they, they have eviscerated asylum protections in the, in the text of this bill. Um, it raises uh, screening standards to levels that no one can meet. It puts caps on the numbers of people that are that can request protection each year. It increases in expulsions and deportations. It is it is an egregious uh, act to try to create new um, asylum policy through the mechanism of a short term funding bill when it when it clearly needs deeper attention. Um, and even though this bill also includes policy priorities that we have that we agree with and have advocated for for years, such as protections for the Afghans who arrived in 2021, it doesn't make it less egregious. We can't just trade away um, the rights and the needs of one vulnerable population for another vulnerable population. That is not right. And as as Eddie said, um, you know, we can we can do multiple things at once. We can do we can do it all. So we are opposing that this week and hoping for a no vote on that. However, we know that this is going to go beyond this moment. These proposals are going to come back and come back this year all year long. The border and asylum will be the main issue in the 2024 election, one of the main issues. And the and the frenzy and the fever pitch and the misinformation um, is going to uh, be at an extreme high all year long. And we're going to be needing to put out accurate information and, and really engaging people on this issue throughout the entire year and, and beyond, let's, let's, let's be clear. And, in, and as, as Eddie said, it has also become more of a complicated landscape for all of us in the Jewish community this year than it was, I think, really maybe ever before, at least in recent memory, because all of it is now tied very publicly to anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Um, and you can see that also this week, also in Congress, with the with the impeachment hearings for Secretary of uh, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who is you know, who is who is being impeached because of border related policies. And it's tied together really with replacement theory and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And that's something that we've been trying to speak out on along with partners um, this week. So I think that all of that is, you know, is, is, is really looming very large for us. Um, I will also say that for highest, um, it, it Although this isn't the thing that, that Congress is debating this week, it's also a major policy priority for us to protect the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program and to make sure that that program is, um, is operating well, that enough people are coming in through it. In the past several years, I think that we all know that there has been um, far lower numbers. The the bar the the cap was set at a certain level, and we've been not even close to reaching that cap. And that is something that we need to insist 
that the U.S. government is at the very least meeting their own intentions to, to bring people to the United States who are in danger overseas, um, but that we can even do uh, more than that and raise those numbers. Uh, this year, the Welcome Corps program started, a private sponsorship program, which was a positive, uh, a positive development. Um, but we are, we still, this is another piece of the immigration system that needs, that needs looking at and needs, um, uh, you know, it needs to be improved so that we can bring more people in a, in a more uh, streamlined way um, and bring them out of the dangerous situations that they're in to the United States. And so that's something that we're also concerned about um, and, you know, and advocate on regularly. I would say that those are probably our top two, um, but it has been, um, you know, Hyas also has a presence in 23 different countries. We are focused on humanitarian aid in multiple different crisis, crisis zones. We are, we are focused on, um, you know, meeting the protection needs and uh, of people in different parts of the world, um, generally speaking, and also looking at particularly vulnerable populations, looking at gender and how that makes, you know, people more vulnerable, looking at uh, gender-based violence, looking at protections for LGBT refugees, uh, looking at protections for children. We're really, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to, um, you know, to pay attention uh, in the different places that we work to how the local conditions are, are affecting people. Um, we are working in Chad, where we're one of the main providers of aid of pe to people fleeing Sudan. We've we've served um, we've served half a million people, you know, through our through our offices in in Chad on the uh, on the on the border there. Um, in the eastern part of Chad, we're working in Israel, um, where we are providing aid. Um, particularly to Sudanese and Eritrean asylum seekers who live in Israel and who were um, affected by the October 7th violence and, and already didn't have protection from the from their own government. Um, and we're, you know, we're responding in different places around the globe. Um, but if I can, um, this was a little scattered, but I'll come back to my first point, which is that if you are watching this program, um, and you're able to pick up the phone and make a phone call to your senator today and say to vote no on the funding proposal uh, that would tear the asylum system apart. I would really encourage you to do that. It's an all hands on deck moment and we need to uh, protect the rights of people who have fled for their lives and are seeking safety in this country. Thank you, Rebecca, for that rundown of the uh, current state of, of the politics around this and uh, a future look at what we need to be concerned at uh, down the line. And uh, also for uh, giving us a taste sort of of the, the really broad mandate that Hyas finds itself with uh, all the all the different uh, people that that um, that Hyas cares for. Uh, thank you very much for that. Charlie. Uh, if I can ask you, what do you think are the main obstacles to more New York area synagogue involvement on issues of immigration? Oh, it's a question we ask ourselves almost every day. Um, you know, I've I, had this discussion I, with you also. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, unlike many of our friends um, we work with in churches, for many of our synagogue members, social action isn't a staff position. 
it's a group of volunteers or some synagogues with staff positions. It's not, it is not as it is in many churches, a, a core piece of the ministry. Uh, why that is, is a question that I doesn't make any sense to me. I have that conversation in my own synagogue where the resources ought to be there. And with a name like Anshe Chesed, we ought to be professionally engaged in loving kindness. But um, so I, I don't have a great explanation for, for that, but that's a piece of the puzzle. The, the other part of that, I think, is that for most people in synagogues, people who are active in social action, small social action committees, remain siloed in their own small community. So the, their resources are only what they can deal with inside their own synagogue. And that's part of the work that we have been trying to do at the, as a coalition in, in, with, our, with our own tiny little small volunteer group um, is to engage our members and, and other synagogues to work together on projects, to join together on projects so that, and we've had really good examples of success in that where a synagogue with smaller resources was able to join with one with larger resources in, uh, in helping families resettle. Uh, we've just had a great local um, highest refugee Shabbat uh, experience, which had which had another highest professional um, Merrill Zach speak at, uh, and and it's those kind of activities that I think we can grow to get more involvement as as we get a little bit a little bit more free to do work ourselves. We want to be able to reach out to more than twenty nine synagogues. Lord knows there are lots more here. Um, and engage the those who are in, who are interested in social action, those who are interested in this topic, um, in in this work, and bring them in either as a synagogue community or as part of a group of people doing the work. It doesn't matter how it gets done; um, it just it has to get done. Um, and I think there's opportunity for us to grow in that. There's opportunity for us to really engage more people. But it's going to take uh, it's going to take groups like Hyas, like ours, that can reach across the, the little silos of individual synagogues to reach the people that want to engage in, in the work um, and to help direct them to volunteer, as I said before, to direct people to volunteer opportunities, to donation opportunities for places where they can make a difference, whether it's inside of, of their congregation or, or not. Yeah, Charlie, I'm hearing the call for uh, for more collaboration. So anyone on this call, if you're a synagogue, if you're part of a synagogue in New York, make sure to reach out to uh, the SCIRC and uh, join with them so that uh, your synagogue, too, can benefit from the knowledge that they have on how to do this work in the best way. What, one just one comment. Hias uh, in its in its grassroots leaders program uh, has regular meetings, and it's interesting to meet with folks across the country see what's happening in in different places that's a really great it's a resource for us as a as a coalition and i think a place that that folks around the country can join in amazing um so charlie i'm going to stick with you for a second while we're on the topic of synagogues uh how does your judaism ground and inspire your work Oh gosh, it's another place I don't have a great answer. I, I, I'm sort of a literalist, so when I get told over and over and over again to welcome the stranger, I figure there's a, a pretty good reason. I live kind of, not quite, but almost in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty, and I, I like to take those words seriously. Um, I think 
you know, there are so many things that um, that inspire us. There are leaders that I work with every day um, that inspire us. Like my our co-chair, Judy Bass, who I work with. And when one of us feels like enough, the other is there to us up and keep us going. So we're inspired by the people around us. We work regularly with many of you know Ruth Messenger, who if anybody spends any time with her and is not inspired, they're never going to be inspired by anything. Um, you know, I'm inspired by my parents' volunteerism. Um, and and that's is that Jewish, is that parents? I however that works. Um, those are the things that inspired us. Um and and we're inspired again, coming back to to doors and opportunities. Um, we can be inspired by our our kids. Um, and I'll I was the director of the shelter at Anchechesed for, for quite some time. Anchechesed had a men's shelter for over thirty years until until COVID. And if you'll just give me a personal story, I, the, when my after my daughter's bat mitzvah, she's. 37 now. After her bat mitzvah, she wanted to do something, and she and friends took on the the uh, opening shift at the shelter, a seven to nine shift once a week at the shelter. And that became a family thing to do. And then she went away to college, and then the slippery slope of volunteerism uh, got me here to what we're doing today. And it's a case where we learn from our parents, we learn from those people around us, we learn from our kids. Um, and, and that's part of Jewish upbringing. That's part of everybody's upbringing. Um, and I think those are that's that's what I think the place to answer your to your answer your question best. Thanks so much. The idea of uh, a family uh, a family shift for uh, for shelter that's really that's inspiring to me. Um. Rebecca, I heard you talking before about calling my uh, my representative to say no to uh, a bill that's currently being voted on, but um, that actually, that sounds pretty easy, but uh, let's say I'm a concerned citizen and I don't have much time. What's the best way for me to start getting involved? Um, so firstly, I love the premise of the question, because I think that, you know, looking at asylum and immigration and refugee issues, there is something for everyone to be do to be doing. There is a way to engage. There is a way that you can help on a systemic level, on an individual level. And we we truly need all of it because welcoming people is not just something that the government does. It's something that we all do. And even if the government were doing their job, it would still be something that we all do. Um, and I think that that is, it's just so important to understand ourselves as as Charlie put it so much better than I am as being part of a, a welcoming community and welcoming country. So I think that if you're looking to get involved and you've never been involved before, first of all, no worries. We want you involved. It doesn't matter what your knowledge level is. It doesn't matter what you've done before. We, you know, we all want you to be involved. Um, and there's ways that you can do that. Some of it is through advocacy. Like I said before, pick up the phone, be in touch with your, your members of Congress, be in touch with your local elected officials, make it clear where your values are on this, write something, 
um, you know, speak out in your local communities, write something for your synagogue newsletter or, you know, for in whatever spaces you have access to. Um, and that's, you know, how you can help to affect the system wide, as Charlie said, you know, uh, highest works with grassroots leaders in different parts of the country, we can help you with talking points, we can help you, um, you know, with knowing what to say and when to say it to elected officials. But there's also ways that you can be involved in terms of local welcome. Um, I think that every immigration uh, organization or refugee agency in the country has uh, needs that they are that uh, that they're looking for from the local community, and you can you can find that out locally, or we can help you to know who to ask and kind of direct you to, based on where you live. Um, but people are looking; these organizations are looking for everything from you know uh, people who can drive uh, drive others to a doctor's appointment, or people who can help tutor in English, or can help support in finding employment, or who can help find housing, or, you know, little things like that. Also, long-term volunteer opportunities. Most organizations are looking for some kind of donations, whether it's financial donations, whether it's, um, you know, donations of, of goods, um, whether it's, uh, you know, as small as collecting some toothbrushes to be able to distribute, you know, or as large as, you know, uh, furnishing an entire apartment. So I think, you know, no matter what your skill set is and no matter how much time you have, I would just encourage you to be involved. And any of us, I can speak for, I know Charlie and I know Eddie, any of us would be happy to help you figure out how. Um, and if we're not sure, we will direct you to one of the others, or we know other people as well in other parts of the country, because it is really a moment. And and I think um, I'll also just say that I think that uh, not only does that have an impact on, on the person that you're helping, but it also has an impact on you yourself, right? Giving Giving helps us to open our own hearts and, you know, and building relationships and seeing ourselves in solidarity that the person in front of you is part of your own, you know, your own future as well um, is is so important in this moment. And so I, I do really encourage you to get involved. Thanks so much, Rebecca. Yeah, it sounds like there's uh, plenty, plenty of work to be done by uh, people with any amount of time in their schedules. Um, Eddie, before we move on to my next question for you, I just want to say that, uh, if anyone in the, um, if any of the participants, uh, here today want to ask a question, feel free to put it in chat and we can, uh, we can ask the, uh, ask the presenters. Uh, okay. Eddie, what is one thing that you would want people to know about the experience of immigration? Oh man, thank you. Uh, what what a question, right? <laughs> if if <clears throat> I think oftentimes we we think that people are like we get two two ways of thoughts or like we get the wave of folks that are like, oh my goodness, um, these people are so helpless. Like, oh, we need to do everything to do to help um because they're so helpless. And the, we get the other camp that you know it's like the far right camp that thinks like, oh, these are invaders and whatnot but for the camp that thinks that these are are really helpless folks i i would want folks to think that they're not 
everybody here that has been able to make it to the United States is an incredible human being, has overcome an incredible amount of things to get to this point right now. They know what they need to do to reach their final point. They know. These aren't people that we should think of pity, but people that we should take inspiration from. I think back to some of the stories of folks who've gone through jungles, deserts, you name it, to get here, have survived horrific things and are still here and have still been able to make it here. So take inspiration. Don't take pity. Take empathy. And think about what your change can be to somebody. What your change can be and how you support people when you start to think through an empathetic lens rather than a pity lens. Well, thank you, Eddie, for the call for empathy and the reminder that um, the resume of every single person who is uh, is immigrating includes a tremendous amount of uh, proven resilience and uh, and dedication and hard work. Uh, all the all the things that we should each um, you know pride ourselves on and really make sure that we're remembering uh, to look for in in the other. Thank you, Eddie. Um, so before we close, I guess I just want to, want to ask if any of you have, uh, anything else you'd like to, uh, to add to this conversation today that I didn't ask about. I just, just one, one, one other point. I mean, I, when, as we worked with individual families, I, I've often had the question of, well, why are you doing this? Um, and my standard response is, well, you are my grandparents' story. Uh, and and one of the things that I think we all can do and we all should do um, is to make sure we tell our family stories, to tell each other our family stories so that they're not forgotten, so that our kids remember them. Um, we, and this was a, a Ruth Messenger uh, thing last year, we at Pesach, uh, we spent time at the Seder with everybody telling their family stories. Um, it was an interesting scheduling thing because what I thought was going to take 15 minutes took an hour and a half of, of conversation with people texting their parents to find out what how, what was grandma's story. And it, it's a powerful link to remember why we ought to be doing this work because everybody here, whether it's Eddie, who is, who is literally a first generation, or us where our grandparents came, um, everybody has that same immigrant story in their background. And the more we tell it, the more we're reminded of the work that we need to do, the work we should be doing, and and that we are the you know we're privileged enough based on their experience to be able to do that work. Thanks so much for that, Charlie. Yeah, as uh, I've been, um, some people ask me sometimes why I've I'm going into the rapid and I say. My father was a rabbi, his father was a rabbi, his father wasn't a rabbi, but his father was a rabbi, his father was a rabbi. And I don't always get to explaining why my grandfather's father wasn't a rabbi, but it was, um, he was selling socks door to door in in Squirrel Hill after, after coming over. I recently got a copy of 
uh, my grandfather's immigration papers. Uh, it's it's really interesting. And um, yeah, they got he, they just got lucky. The fact that there are still rabbis in the Weimach family, that's it's you know, I can't I can't like pray enough for that same luck to be uh, to be granted to other people because uh, I know that my family has really benefited from it. Um, um, can I add to that to, um, to just say that I think, you know, in working with the Jewish community, I think that um, I have the extreme privilege of so many people coming up to me and saying, highest, you know, you highest helped my family, you know, back in this decade or back in that decade. And, um, and, you know, and that's why they're taking action with highest because it's part of their story and it's part of their family story. But I think that what gets lost for a lot of people is that a, a lot of our family members, including mine, if they were to try to come now, they wouldn't be able to. There's a different set of uh, restrictions and immigration laws now than there was really at any other point. I mean, uh, there's lots of different stories in my family, but the one, the person I'm named after, my grandma Becky came in through Ellis Island. All they had to do was get a ticket on a boat, basically, you know, and they had, a, they, and and they, they, they struggled. They had a hard life, you know, they, to, to, uh, be, to move and to be in a new place and to, uh, you know, to acculturate in a new place, absolutely. But but the types of barriers that our country has built are very different, and um, and so we can compare stories. But I think we also have to realize that the that the policies right now, my God, you know, uh, are 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 totally different ball game, and um, and it shouldn't be that way, and. And they're, you know, if it was unfair, then it's it's 20 times more unfair now. So I, I just wanted to add that in as well, because it's something that's it gets lost in in our conversation sometimes, um, you know, about, you know, where, where people who have been here for several generations say, oh, well, my family immigrated, but they did it the right way. That's because back back then there was one. And right now there isn't one and there, there's no, you know, pathway. Um so it's one thing I wanted to say. And then the other thing that I wanted to say was um, I, I think that all of us are thrust into this defensive posture all the time of trying to fight the bad bills, fight the bad policies, you know, kind of uh, address these awful, um, you know, statements and pieces of rhetoric from political leaders. And I just want to encourage us to I'm so glad I have people like Charlie and Eddie in my life. I feel like we're going to be in it together this year and we need to approach this year with courage and and confidence and courage and uh, to say the right things and to know that when we do that, that people will follow us and, and to not be forced into this defensive posture of fighting the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and, you know, and, and arguing with people that, that, will never agree, but to, to lead, to lead with courage. I think that's what this year will take. And, um, and I really encourage anyone watching this to, to be part of that and to join us um, in trying to build the world that we want to uh, want to live in. Yeah. Thanks for that call to courage, Rebecca. And there's a question in chat about how do we move away from fear around these sorts of things? And we discussed this a little bit earlier, but I want to say for me, the song that I grew up singing, and it's 
it's not really cliche. It's really just powerful. Is all of the world is a very narrow bridge. Not all of Judaism or like all of wherever you live is a very narrow bridge. The whole world. We're taking a big view here. And it's really, it feels narrow. And that's scary, right? We, we know that there is fear. The, the key is to not be afraid, right? How do you do that? You start like, think about the analogy that was given. You start walking across the bridge. You pick up the courage and you start walking across the bridge. And that's, it's hard, but there's a million things to fear. And this is not one of the ones that I personally am willing to allow my fear to get in the way of uh, my moral compass. And uh, yeah, Alan, thank you for thank you for the question. And uh, I, I encourage you to yeah think about the other things in your life that you're afraid of, and think about how you get through the, through those fears. Um, this one I think is probably no different. Um, thank you so much, everyone. Oh. Yeah, Eddie. Thank you, Ellie. I also want to take a crack at that question. Yeah, um, go ahead. I also think that when we start sharing our own stories, um, stories are what brings personal connections to things. And my biggest way of dispelling a lot of xenophobia is to personally connect with people. Because when you I share my story, when I share where I came from, how I got here, how hard it was my life now um you know still not having full citizenship and 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 the trials and tribulations that i go through and i'm your friend and i'm somebody you care about it starts to shift the way that you think about fear it starts to shift the component of the unknown and it also shifts me away from being a digit and um an, uh, an illegal alien right it puts puts a person into that thought. It puts a face and it puts a, a story behind the feeling. So it starts to transform the way that we start thinking. And I I, I talk to people who are, you know, generations past who have told me, you know, well, my parents did it the right way through highest. And we get down to the nitty gritty and it actually turns out that highest did what it needed to do to get them here. And at that time, wasn't legal. So folks then understand that at that point, fearing for your life pushed you to do whatever means necessary to ensure that you were safe and ensure that you're here. And think about it today. Millions of, 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 of people have such a powerful, deep, rich migrant story that they don't tap into, that they forget about that we are complicit in our own way of understanding our own history, that we think that just because I have it good, what do we think about our generations before? How would you have treated your grandfather or your ancestors when they needed help? To know that that then turned out to having, giving you the life that you have now. So I think this is a great question of how do we transform and combat hate and fear? I think it's through stories and narratives. I think it's each time we sit down on Shabbos and we share a story. I think it's each time we analyze the Parsha and think about how it affects us now. I think it's about how we collectively come together as community members, not just locally in synagogues, but nationally with Hayas. Start to change the narrative and how we view immigrants. That's how you truly start to combat the fear and the hate.
Wow. Amazing answer, Eddie. Thank you so much. And I think that's a, a great note to, uh, to end this panel on. Um, I will recommend that everyone, if you feel like you've gotten something out of this panel, we're going to be sending out the recording. Make sure to disperse that recording among your friends. Make sure to be following Hyas. Make sure uh, Judy put the, uh, the link to how to uh, engage with SCRIC in the chat. Um, and we will uh, we'll follow up also with uh, contact information for how you can uh, continue to find out more and you know move your what little time you have into into helping uh, to to work on this. Thank you everyone for coming today. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Eddie.